This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The CEO of a new tech startup, Samuel M. Kamis, is building a chip that can be embedded in your smartphone and will be able to smell your breath. With just a whiff, the electric nose sensor, which Kamis is developing at Adamant Technologies, can provide information about a person's current metabolic state and detail how many calories he or she is burning in real time. For those looking to lose weight, this would be potentially invaluable. The invention is also being refined to warn users well in advance if they're about to have an asthma attack. Thomas expects his new sensor technology will eventually be used for many other real-time healthcare applications, with developers testing all different kinds of possibilities around breath analysis. Sam, uh, we're both interested in the subject, but totally novices in it. So first, some fundamental questions. Give us a sense of uh, how you got interested in this subject itself and how that grew when you were here at Penn and how you got from there to Adamant. Sure, guys, sure. So, you know, the idea of using technology, uh, especially advanced technology, to help the general population out, or in in other words, to make an impact in our lifetimes, is something I've always been very interested in personally. It sort of became like a personal thesis of mine before I went to grad school. Um, And so when I went to grad school at UPenn back in 2004, uh, you know, fundamentally I started out working on, you know, novel nanotechnology at, you know, a basic science kind of level. Uh, always with applied devices, but at kind of a basic science level. And what we found after, you know, about a year of experimentation was that, you know, we had a system which could make, you know, sort of a next generation sensor, which could have the potential to do things that, you know, most things have never been able to do before, certainly not other sensor systems. And so, you know, I spent the rest of my time at Penn developing that system and, you know, building up the blocks that would make it into a real technology. And, you know, that was something I always, you know, probably as soon as we realized that, you know, thought would make a great company. Now, at the beginning, I wouldn't say that I was poising this as a medical device or as a mobile health kind of device or a product, but uh, definitely I knew we had something. So, you know, I I graduated in 2009. Um, I moved out to Silicon Valley because I always kind of wanted to do the, the whole startup thing. But I would say at that point I didn't really know much about the, the startup world. So I, I actually worked on another company before this, um, also making sensors, but a totally totally different platform. And spent about a year doing that. Um, had another little diversion where I, you know, I tried to make some money to start this company with my own consulting company. Um, did that for about a year and a half. And then 2011, I founded Adamant Technologies. And, and when I did so, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going back to this core technology that we came up with at UPenn because, you know, we wanted to go into the mobile health space. And, you know, that space is very fragmented today. I mean, it's becoming a very hot topic and it's something everybody's interested in, but it's very fragmented. And one of the things I always say is that if we want to get from where we are today to the kind of devices that everybody talks about where you have, you know, a mobile device that's able to tracking your health, you know, looking at your organ function, giving you an overall profile of your health and wellness every day, you know, there's just nothing that exists to do that. Everything you see today, while they're, they're great devices, you know, are all based on, 
you know, 30, 40 year old technology, you know, traditionally accelerometer based devices and whatnot. And so to bridge that gap, you really need a novel core technology. And so we were really primed with that opportunity to be able to do that. And, and that's sort of what we're marshalling towards right now. And when you were here at Penn, uh, were you at the engineering school or tell me, you know, exactly what were you, where were you at when you were here? Right. Yeah, I, I got my Ph.D. in physics. Uh, well, I was at University of Pennsylvania, so I spent, a, you know, all my time in sort of the basement of uh, 33rd and Walnut. Okay. And in terms of uh, this device itself now, uh, tell us what this chip is. Does this involve nanotechnology, or what makes it so new and so dramatically different from everything else that's been out in this sensing uh, field? Yeah, so one thing that people have tried for years is to make a electronic nose, you know, just to sort of use a phrase that was coined a long time ago. And that, that really means a device that can do detection in the same way as a human nose or a dog nose or whatnot does, but with artificial sensors. But, you know, fundamentally people have approached that problem incorrectly. Um, the idea that you can make a really good sensor is only the start. So what people have traditionally done is said, I'm going to make a device which can detect, you know, uh, let's just call it 100 chemicals, 100 different odorants, 100 different vapors. Um, and so the way people have approached that is we're going to make a very good sensor for this one, a very good sensor for the next one. And, you know, you can see how that problem doesn't really scale because as you go to 100 sensors, or I'm sorry, as 100 different signals you want to detect, you need 100 different sensors. And the idea that there will be no crosstalk between those sensors is almost, it's, it's just an impossibility. So when we did this, you know, we really engineered this chip that we have, which is completely based on nanotechnology. We engineered it to be able to work just like a human nose. And, and you know, what that means is in a human nose, you have roughly 400 different types of olfactory receptor proteins. So when you or I smell something, um, our brain is seeing a 400-dimensional fingerprint, which um, uniquely identifies that thing. We can store that fingerprint, and then, you know, we're smart enough. We, in other words, we have a good enough algorithm in our brain to deconvolve that fingerprint from, you know, many other fingerprints. And that's why when you smell, you know, two different things in the room at the same time, you know both of them are there, and you're not just interpreting the mixture. So we developed our sensor chip so that uh, it's a little array of, nano sensors and each sensor is capable of detecting everything in other words it'll respond to any chemical that it encounters and each node will respond slightly differently and so what that means is we get a fingerprint which is the same dimensionality as our sensor array um, but gives a fingerprint to every chemical uh, just a slightly different fingerprint so we're able to do the same same exact type of thing that the human nose or the dog nose or whatever would do um, to be able to both detect and interpret uh, things that we smell. And in terms of the uniqueness of this technology, I mean, uh, is this patented? So, like, you absolutely own these new concepts, or what, what's the status of the rights with this thing? So we filed a lot of IP on this while I was at UPenn, and I think, you know, the groups I worked with. So I, I worked with uh, the Charlie Johnson group in the physics department, and so they've continued to develop some of this technology from a fundamental research standpoint, uh, always with a gear towards application as well. But uh, I've now licensed the IP around this uh, exclusively from the University of Pennsylvania for all usage cases, and we've spun that into our company. Uh, and, you know, of course, along the way, we've developed new IP. 
that represents you know all the usage cases of this technology, all of the you know drivers needed to to incorporate it into other devices, and all of the uh, other optimizations that we've done on the system. So we have a pretty broad IP stance as far as this technology is concerned, and even as far as the type of devices we want to make, uh, which I guess I haven't even talked about yet, but the type of devices that we want to make, we have a pretty broad IP around that as well. And the devices, uh, again, in layman's terms, I'm assuming this is a chip, and you put it in any kind of smartphone, phones, certain smartphones, there need to be a new generation of smartphones before it would work. What's the, what's the technical status? Yeah, so we're developing a product right now that would be able to interface with any of the recent gen smartphones. So, you know, your iPhones, your iPhone 5s, uh, your Samsung Galaxy S3s and 4s, uh, anything beyond that, and, and actually some of the ones before that, as long as they've got the right software upgrade. But we're developing a device which is going to talk either via Bluetooth or actually direct connect through the connector, the USB, or the lightning adapter on the phone. Um, and, you know, the idea, the reason we're using that form factor you know, one of the things I always say is the problem with health devices today or mobile health devices specifically is everybody approaches it as a standalone device. Well, that means a couple things. You know, number one, you've got to do a lot of extra engineering to put in all the intelligence into the device. That costs money. It takes time. Um, the other thing is from a consumer or a user standpoint, you know, nobody wants to have a pocket full of devices. You know, you don't want to get up every morning and worry about charging your cell phone, charging your iPad, charging your, you know, Fitbit, charging your other thing, charging your other thing. You, you don't want to do that, right? You want to have one thing that you pick up and carry with you, and it doesn't require you to change your habit um, because that's the easiest way to get people to use something. So I think the failure of a lot of the current generation devices have been that they require the user to remember something else and to change a, ha change a habit. And so what we hope to do is by developing this device that's really just nothing but a peripheral, very small peripheral, but a peripheral that would plug into your cell phone that would be right at the point where your mouth is breathing out. Um, when I put my cell phone to my head to talk, uh, much like we're doing right now, um, that device will activate and in a very passive way pull in my breath, analyze it on our chip, and then you don't even have to think about taking that data. And, in fact, you don't have to look at it. You can look at it down the road somewhere, and it will be, you know, cataloged somewhere. So, you know, that's why we're looking at this as a real mobile device, because it has direct access to the human breath, which is a, you know, sort of a looking glass into your blood, um, but non-invasive. And it doesn't require the user to change their habit or to carry something else with them or to even worry about charging something else. Okay, so you have this really neat technology that sounds like it's got all this potential. How far are you from um, being in a place where it's actually a sustainable business? Uh, like, uh, when you look at the arc in front of you, how many years do you see before this thing might be sold across the country? Or what? Uh, tell us about the business plan uh, and, and, and how ultimately you hope this will become a successful product. Absolutely. So. One of the things we've spent a lot of time on in the last year is seeing, you know, exactly where we fit in terms of biomarker detection for different diseases and different conditions. And so we've, we've now mapped out a really nice library of a bunch of different conditions, and a lot of them we're not even going to work on for, for quite a while. But, you know, we can detect biomarkers for things ranging from, you know, the human metabolic rate, so how many calories you're burning and what type of calories those are, which is in some sense a simple application but a very powerful one. 
the whole way to looking at, you know, chronic monitoring of things like asthma and COPD, or, you know, looking at early warning signs for diseases like tuberculosis and lung cancer and breast cancer. And so we've got this wide catalog of things. Now, the way we're approaching this from a business standpoint is, you know, we had that broad catalog of things. Now we've drilled down on two applications that we've been really trying to, to kill it in. And actually, we've turned a corner very sharply in the last, you know, not so long, where we've unlocked the applications we want to work on. And those are really asthmatic monitoring, so telling an asthmatic, you know, 45 minutes, maybe longer, uh, before an attack happens that that attack is imminent. So you can, you know, change lifestyle, you can take medicine, you can do all sorts of things to avoid that attack. And that's one application space we're looking at. The other is, and I mentioned this just briefly a minute ago, is uh, you know, human metabolic rate, or really more specifically human metabolic state. So are you in a fat-burning state? Are you in a carb-burning state? Are you in a fat storage state? This is a really, really good tool for people who are trying to lose weight. Because one of the things people don't have right now is you know, direct, real-time feedback for weight loss. I mean, one of the best things you have is being able to stand on the scale and see when you've lost weight. But, you know, the latency for that is on the order of a week to two weeks. So a lot of times you don't know whether what you're doing right now is having direct impact or not. And so we want to give the user the ability to have that impact. And we look at an application of the, like that leading into, you know, even, even more impactful things like monitoring people for prediabetes. Um, and telling someone when they're about to cross into that state where their, you know, blood glucose, blood insulin has a total imbalance and, uh, you know, you're on the way to being a diabetic. And so we hope to help people monitor that as we go forward. So we are right now uh, approximately 18 months from having a metabolic state device done. It could happen sooner, but that's, that's kind of a real number. It's not a sandbag. Uh, given the little bit of R&D we need to do, some of the... Uh, uh, real product development that we're working on and some of the trials we want to do. And so, you know, mid-next year, we're hoping to launch a, a very large and broad study uh, with about a 1,000 devices, hopefully a 1,000 participants, using one of our prototype devices uh, for three months, detecting their breath about 10 times a day. And through that, we'll get a lot of things. You know, we'll get user feedback. We'll get feedback on the application. But really, and one of the most powerful things, we're going to have one of the biggest databases of human breath that's ever been collected. And because of the high-dimensional uh, form factor and the high-dimensional you know, way that we detect that breath, we'll have more information about the human breath than anyone's ever had before. And we'll be able to correlate new biomarkers. And we'll be able to ultimately go much farther than what's been able to be done in the past, not just from a sensor perspective, but now we having the power of that data and that database. So that, that's kind of how we're rolling this out as a business <clears throat> right now. Uh, so based on what you said, uh, what are some of the main competitors uh, uh, to what you're trying to do, uh, whether it's products or companies or technologies, and uh, how do you plan to position Adamant in that space? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the competitive landscape for something like this, uh, you know, competitors fall into a couple different buckets. There are people who I, I mentioned earlier that are using old technologies. And, you know, in my mind, those guys can't compete once we come on the market because everything they do is an estimate. So anything that tells you how many steps you've taken or your motion, well, like I said, it's very powerful now. It's still just an estimate. Once we're able to tell people their actual metabolic rate and calorie burn, there, there's really just no, no comparison there. Um, a, a second bucket you know, we, we have a platform at the heart of it, right? So we're going after a few application spaces, and those are going to be our product lines. But at the heart of it, there will always be an R&D component to our company. 
And so we have many different directions we can go, many different verticals we can attack. So there's a lot of different people attacking only one or two verticals, usually just one. And a lot of those guys have sensors like the other thing I mentioned, where they've made a very good sensor for one type of chemical or one type of signal. So those guys, that's very interesting, you know, proposition. But where it fails is, you know, the human breath is such a mixture of chemicals. It's, you know, roughly 300 chemicals for, uh, you know, average healthy human breath. And so if you want to go after that, you really need to be able to detect some large percentage of those chemicals and actually do it in a high-dimensional way or else, you know, you're going to fail. Um, there are people doing this same sort of problem but not with breath. There's a lot of people working on blood or urine or sweat-based detection. Um, you know, sweat is probably the closest to non-invasive like we're doing, but with blood and urine, you know, you're still asking the user to either, you know, prick their finger, prick their arm, or, you know, obviously give a urine sample. And so in that area, you know, we're just far more convenient, far cheaper, and the most important thing is we're reusable. Uh, most of those guys have a cartridge in play. So, you know, you have to not only buy the device, but you have to buy a cartridge or a package of cartridges and swap those out after every test. Um, our device also has been engineered to be completely reversible, meaning, you know, the user buys the device and then they don't have to replace a cartridge. They can use it for many, many thousands of cycles uh, without any kind of issue. So, so that's, I mean, that's a good snapshot, I would say, of the, the competition right now. And uh, the way we position ourselves uh, is that we are the only uh, high-dimensional, low-power, you know, small footprint and lightweight device that's also cheap to make, um, which means it's cheap for the user to buy, that can do so many very powerful things and in a very non-invasive, non-habitual changing way. Can you, uh, you know, uh, in about 18 months you'll have a product and realistically, uh, you know, it could be another 18 months before, you know, it's fully marketed out there. Mm -hmm. Do you feel comfortable or can you tell us something about uh, your uh, the capital you've raised until now, and what do you have the funds to, you know, uh, run this thing out for another three years before it pays off, or uh, mm -hmm. how's your how's your uh, fundraising going? Sure. So, you know, I, I founded the company in 2011, and for most of the first year, I funded it out of pocket, uh, sort of bootstrapped it. Um, in 2012, we started looking for institutional capital, and we raised our first round with uh, Coastal Ventures being, you know, the only institutional investor in uh, back in the summer of 2012. So, you know, from their money, you know, we've been able to develop our technology to the point of a prototype, to the point of being mass production ready, uh, to the point of getting our sensor chip to, you know, where it can be volume produced, uh, meaning it brings the cost way down and makes it much easier to, to get manufactured. Um, you know, currently, <clears throat> we're, we're sort of in the middle of a fundraise right now. Uh, and the idea right now is to raise the money to get us through the rest of these trials we need to do and to get us to the point of full productization. Uh, there's significant interest, and I think the market is starting to bear these type of devices a lot better uh, because people are realizing they need novel technology. Um, you know, so, so from that perspective, I'm not too concerned about being able to raise the capital we need, um, especially given our progress. Uh, the one, the one comment I'll, I'll just make there is that you know I think there's been a real attitude in the investment community until very recently that's very risk averse to new technologies, and so I, I'm seeing that start to change. Um, you know, certainly our investors were very forward thinking and are always very forward thinking in terms of the sort of things they do, and a lot of the people we've met over the last year, have, there's there's a certain number of those that have that same idea, 
And so what I always tell people is, you know, you want to do the next big thing, you have to invest in new core technology. And you have to really understand that that's what's going to change the playing field. So, so yeah, I, I think there's a big change going on right now, and I think that's going to continue and only get better over the next uh, couple of years. All right, and we cover uh, in the center that I'm at here at Penn, we cover the healthcare industry and uh, to keep a close look on the medical device uh, world and how that's going. Uh, on, on that area of your marketing here where you're talking about, you know, this thing as an early warning sign for cancer and other serious diseases, uh, do you consider this to be a medical device and do you see FDA involvement now or down the line? The FDA has been taking increasingly aggressive action to step into the sort of the peripheral fringe area of apps and, and other things like this? Sure. So, so, you know, fundamentally, the vision of Adamant Technologies is making a consumer health device. So what that means is it's a device that you or I would use uh, every day. And as we take all these data points, I mean, you know, the average person uses their phone around 150 times a day. So that's 150 opportunities for me to take data about your body. Now, like you said, there's this way you could poise this as a medical device versus something else. For some of those, those applications you just mentioned, like cancer detection or, or, or whatnot, that's something where I actually think that data is always going to be handled by your doctor. I mean, there's no reason, and in fact, there's a lot of liability around me telling you that you have cancer. Now, that's not to say that someday we won't look for those early warning signs. Those kind of applications are much farther down the road, though. Um, in terms of the FDA, yeah, we will absolutely need some FDA approval um, for many of our apps. Uh, we're going to start with one that doesn't require FDA approval, and that's, that's where I mentioned the human metabolic rate uh, device. But when we get on to the more impactful things, we absolutely will need uh, FDA approval. That's right. And on the, uh, the, uh, the other thing you mentioned is the management of chronic diseases, which is a gigantic issue mm -hmm. going forward with the baby boomers and, and, and the ACA. In terms of diabetes, just give us a vision of, uh, I'm, I'm a serious diabetic, mm -hmm. how would uh, your chip and your device do something for me that I now can't do or I don't do well in terms of adherence or whatever? How would it fit in to managing my full-blown diabetes? Sure. So, you know, the non-invasive management of diabetes, I would say, has been a holy grail for, for many years, right? And, and in a lot of ways, if you look at the landscape of companies that have tried that, it's become a graveyard of good intention, where people have tried stuff and failed and tried stuff and failed and been way too, you know, just way too forward with, with trying to do that. That's an application I think is very interesting because I think it's very detrimental to many people's way of life. So we're very interested in it. Now, the, the one caveat I'll say is that today, I would say basic research has not yet, at least clearly enough for me, identified a biomarker from the breath that represents you know, directly your blood glucose content. So it's not something that yet could be used for you know, true blood glucose management. Now, the one thing we can do, and that there's a lot of research to back up, is tell you when you're in a high blood glucose state or a low blood glucose state. So that's where I say that, you know, we could be very impactful to people that are at that pre-diabetic stage. So you look for peaks and troughs in people's, um, you know, in their ketone content in their breath. And what that gives you is that gives you sort of a clear way to tell when you're reacting adversely to things you eat or the way you work out or things you do, right? So, so that's one thing we can do. Now, my hope and my belief is 
as we gain more insight into what's in people's breath and the correlation between things they do, I think there actually is a biomarker for, diabetes, for, for blood glucose that we will discover or some combination of biomarkers that has been missed before because of the, the way people have looked at it. So while today I can't tell you that we'll have a non-invasive blood glucose monitoring device anytime in the near future, I think that the chances are good that someday we will. And at that point, the idea would be to allow you to just, like I said, completely non-invasively manage your blood glucose, test for it, and not have to prick your finger all the time like you do now. And what, do you, what else do you think is really important to understand the market potential of this thing or why it might succeed when the other big guys, uh, you know, may uh, reverse engineer you and just, you know, they have the capacity both in marketing and manufacturing. I mean, you know, what else do you think should be said about why your product is likely to succeed or what it's mm -hmm. likely to do? Well, <clears throat> the first thing I'll say is, you know, I started out by saying this is based off of nanotechnology. A anybody who's ever looked at anything at the nanoscale, um, I, I could basically tell you 99% of what we do and all the know-how in that last 1% would, would stop anybody from reverse engineering this for, for quite some time. Uh, aside from maybe the, the people with the absolute most money and most resources at their disposal out there. But um, in terms of <clears throat> the novelty of this whole thing, I mean, there's really very few people in the world that are domain experts enough about what we do and how we're poisoning it to actually be able to, to recreate or to you know, basically scoop us. So in terms of that, I think that from a technology standpoint, we're, we're very well poised. From, from a market standpoint, I mean, the one thing to think about, the one thing that always weighs on my mind is breath diagnostics are not something that people have gotten used to yet. Uh, they're only used now in very limited ways for, you know, looking at lung function in a pulmonologist's office. Or, you know, if you're a asthmatic, you'll, you'll, you'll breathe into a spirometer and see what your lung volume is. Or you'll sometimes, again, at your pulmonologist, look for the nitric oxide content of your breath. Um, and so in those cases, some people are used to it. But really poisoning this is something that everybody accepts as the broad sort of diagnostic for your health. It's a little bit of a concern, but I think it can be solved through easing people into it with apps that are a lot less scary. And that means, you know, things like doing your metabolic state or doing even simpler things like telling someone if they have bad breath or that sort of thing first. And then using that as a real way to evangelize this as a technology and as a technique. And then we can, we can really move into the space where we have this ubiquitous monitoring device that becomes part of a system which will involve your doctor, which will involve all of your primary care team and you to really take control of your health in this sort of, you know, like I said, real-time, non-invasive way. And how many employees do you have now? Give us a sense of, like, what's actually going on in the company. Mm -hmm. So we're based in South San Francisco, just real close to SFO here. Uh, we just hired our 10th employee on site here. Um, and this site is really our sensor testing facility. So, you know, we test all of our sensors, we develop novel sensors, we, you know, figure out how good they are detecting things, prime the algorithms, do all of that sort of stuff here, do our product development here. Uh, we also work off-site with a semiconductor fab. And, you know, there, that's where they make our chips, right? So they make all of our chips on a sort of 8-inch wafer scale, uh, which is, you know, sort of the industry standard at this point. And we maintain, maintain about a seven- or eight-person outsourced team there uh, with one of my team members here interfacing and, and running with all those guys there. So that's sort of the scale of where we are now. Now, we're, we're really poised to grow a lot in the next year. 
you know, we're at that point where we need to build out a lot of our teams, you know, much bigger to manage some of the other parts of the company's growth. So, you know, I anticipate hiring another 15 people or so sometime in the next nine months, um, you know, over the next nine months, rather, uh, to really help finish building it out. But that, that's where we are today. So uh, you, you, you've identified that the mobile health and fitness space market is about $25 billion, uh, uh, or supposed to be $25 billion by 2017. Uh, how do you estimate the potential growth prospects for Adamant and, and, and what would be your strategy to achieve that growth? So the first thing is all the projections today are saying that that's going to be the size by around 2017. I, I actually think that we're going to see a, a little bit stronger growth. Uh, and the reason is today estimating that market relies on the kind of devices and apps and things that we have today. But, you know, you look at how like the mobile phone market grew almost exponentially with the onset of new smartphones and whatnot, and new technologies. And I think we're going to see something very similar. Um, now, in terms of, you know, where do I see the potential for growth for us? Well, like I said, this is a platform device, and we're always going to be able to add new applications and new types of detection that we can do. So even if we penetrate at the beginning only at this sort of health and fitness level and then grow into some of these chronic marketing spaces, I think that we are, you know, particularly poised to grow into more verticals within that space than anybody else. So I think that gives us a, a nice advantage there. And so as the market grows, you know, our usage across the different verticals in that market are going to grow as well. And I think you're also going to see the idea of a mobile health market changing, um, just like, you know, it's, it's almost, we're almost to the point now where we don't call our cell phone a cell phone because it does so many other things. But as, you know, mobile health devices become more pervasive, we're going to see this be more of a, you know, consumer monitoring, consumer health monitoring type market, which is going to encompass a lot more. So I think that, again, in some sense, the real answer is time will tell. But, but that's, that's my take on, on how this is going to roll out. And, and what are some of the major risks that you see and, and what steps are you taking to hedge them? Mm-hmm. Well, so like I said, one risk is getting consumers to adopt the idea of a breath diagnostic device. And we're going to hedge against that by trying very early on trials with patients and with uh, consumers. So I mentioned we're going to do sort of a thousand-person type of study next year. We're starting much smaller studies now, actually in the next you know, month or so, uh, with different uh, physicians um, just to try out this on patients and get that sort of acceptance. So the idea I have is getting people to accept and understand this type of a device early um, allows them to be further evangelists for the technology later. Uh, you know, another thing we're doing there is we're going to start by working with sort of gurus in the field, you know, trainers and, you know, people that help you lose weight uh, and get them to help us trickle down into the actual consumers that need this device. So that's, that's really one risk. I would say, you know, another risk, um, well, I mean, there's, like I said, there's always sort of marketing risk. There's always sort of that's one of the biggest risks I see. It's kind of the same thing. It's really just how will people accept this and how do we poise it correctly so that people uh, people want it and people accept it. You know, another risk, obviously, is regulatory risk. And, you know, you mentioned that the FDA is starting to crack down more and more on peripherals and apps and stuff like that. I would say there's not a clear um, vision there yet in terms of how they're going to regulate mobile health devices and again, mostly because there haven't been that many mobile health devices that need to be regulated yet. I mean, there certainly are case studies, but you know there aren't that many yet. So that's another risk: is just how we're going to be poised in a regulatory stance. That's kind of how I look at it. Uh, 
couple of last questions. Uh, uh, you, you, you've mentioned before that you're building up, a, you know, the, possibly the largest database on human breath uh, that has ever been accumulated. Uh, what are some of the other things that you can do with that as an asset? Mm-hmm. So one of the big things we're interested in is sensor aggregation. So taking our sensor and aggregating that with all the other sensors that are available to us today. You know, and your your mobile phone has you know multiple accelerometers. It has a GPS chip. There's you know a, a gyroscope. There's a magnetometer. There's all this other data that you can aggregate, as well as stuff that you can bring in wirelessly from the network. So I think that what's going to make that even more powerful is being able to tell what someone's health look like when they're here, when it's this temperature, when they're moving this way. Um, and, and that just gives you so much further insight into how to manage your health. You know, if you always have an asthma attack when you're at this particular GPS location, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good indicator to you that maybe something there is wrong and maybe it's some sort of pollutant or some sort of allergen which is really bothering you. And so I think that's going to be really powerful. You know, if you, if you sort of flip that on its head, it's going to help other people. I mean, and, and these other people can be anybody from, you know, the, the health industry to the pharmaceutical industry to the advertising industry. Tell, you know, where you are when certain things happen and tell what's the state of your body when certain things happen. And so I actually think the potential is, is almost unknown at this point uh, to having that sort of data about people's health because it's never been available before. And so I think we're going to see a lot of really, really interesting things develop out of that. And I think it's going to be actually a huge value to our company as well as to a lot of other people. And what would you say is your long-term vision for Adamant? Long-term vision. Well, like I said, I, I got started in this because the, my vision is that someday everybody has a device that they hold in their hand, and when you wake up in the morning, you breathe, and you get your overall health score, and you get sort of this idea about what's going on with your body on a daily basis and throughout the day. And, and that gives everybody their own control over their health and, uh, you know, gives you power that you've never had before. And I think that that's going to help not only consumers as patients, but also their doctors to better facilitate an interaction with the user. I mean, now you go to your general practitioner once a year if you're, if you're actually on top of it and get this checkup, which, you know, if you have a really good doctor, it's great. But if you don't, you know, you're not really getting the insights you need. So I hope that we can, you know, dec decrease, uh, you know, the onset of certain kinds of diseases. I hope we can increase the efficacy of treatments that people get and, you know, the, decrease the frequency of hospital visits and the need for certain medications and whatnot. And I just see that being such an ad to society that that's, that's my vision. Now, <clears throat> from a business perspective, I mean, obviously we're looking to partner as soon as possible with, you know, some other like-minded industry people um, who want to help us partner with this and accelerate it even into the hands of consumers and into the hands of a lot of people to, to make this a reality much sooner. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.